Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to open your word. God, please help me. Lord, thank you that you you have taught me so much, God, from your word and particularly from this passage, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for feeding me, God. And God, I just ask you for help now, Lord, as you that you, God, would use me to to feed your people now. God, help me. God, help me to bring some manner of refreshment, Lord, a word of refreshment. God, comfort where it's needed. God, bring conviction, heavy conviction from your spirit where it's needed. God, just pray that you'd meet the needs of us all, God, as we look at your word. Your word is so powerful. Alive, active, sharper than your two-edged sword, Lord. So God, I just pray you would exalt your word in our midst. Please, God, help me. Please use me, Lord. God, I pray for all of us here to... You've commanded us not only to hear your word, but you commanded us, God, to incline our ears, to zone in, to listen, God. I just pray that you'd help every person here to listen intently to your word because your word is so important. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, if you don't know, we're uh, just coming through the Gospel of Mark. And today, this is where we're landing. Mark chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 45 to 56, as your sheet says there. Verse 45 to 56. And what I want to do, and you can kind of tell on your sheet there, uh, I'm going to break it up into two sections. The first section, of course, is Jesus walking on water. It's awesome that I get to preach that. It's verse 45 to 52. And the second section is verse 53 to 56, which is just like uh, a summary of Jesus' last uh, stand or stretch there in His ministry in Galilee. So that's kind of where we're headed. So we're going to start off in Mark 6, 45 to 52. This is Jesus walking on water. Um, this is an event, another miraculous event in the life of Jesus that we're about to read about in this passage. Before we read it, let me, let me just say a few things, okay? This passage of Scripture is all about the glory of Jesus. This passage of Scripture is about the glory of Christ. And what I mean by that is this passage of Scripture is meant as this miracle is performed by Jesus and we've got the scripture to read about it so that we'll look at Jesus and go, oh man, he is glorious. This is for his glory. This is for his namesake. This is so that we'll bow down and worship him. That's the point of Jesus performing this miracle that we're about to read about in just a moment. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't that the point of all the miracles? Aren't you just kind of stating the obvious there? Aren't all the miracles for the glory of Jesus? And that's why I would say, yes, all miracles that He performs are for the glory of Jesus. But let me just add an exclamation point. Especially, especially this miracle is for the glory of King Jesus. Now, why do I say that? One reason could be just the, is just the randomness of this miracle. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought about Jesus walking on water? And you know His miracles. He does a miracle where He heals somebody. And that person's healed. It has a glory to Jesus effect and it has a humanitarian effect. Or, or something where he, he feeds the thousands, like we just, uh, Dustin just went through a couple weeks back, the passage just before this in Mark. He feeds 20,000 plus people. Just miraculous work of God shows the creator power of Jesus. 
And it has this humanitarian effect. But then we get to this miracle and he's walking on water. What's this all about? Does ever just seem kind of random to you? And it's something that I want you to see is this miracle is different from the rest. He's walking on water and this has zero humanitarian effect. It's simply for the glory of Jesus. He walks on water just to scream the fact, I'm God, I'm Christ, I'm the Almighty, I'm here to save, trust me. It's the only reason reason why he's doing it. You might say he fed the thousands and yes, it was for his glory, but it was also to feed those hungry people. But on this one, you have nothing to say, but it's just for his glory. He's just walking on water. He's treading the waves of the sea. And that's where we're headed into to read this. Now, you can also see that this miracle, that this miracle of Jesus walking on water is especially for the glory of Jesus by catching the flow of thought through the gospel of Mark. Now, this will be easier for if you've been with us the whole time and you've been kind of studying through Mark with us. But I just want to kind of I want to get you to think through the flow of thought of this gospel, this whole book of Mark. Okay. You start off in Mark chapter 1 and you have an amazing introduction to Jesus. I mean, Jesus has His own herald saying, the Son of God has arrived. Jesus goes to His baptism and the sky splits open and a voice comes out of the sky and says, that's my Son. God the Father speaks audibly. This is the introduction to the life and ministry of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. And it gets better as you keep reading. You get into chapter 2 In chapter 2, really verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, you're seeing the opposition that Jesus is facing. You get five stories where Jesus faces opposition from the religious leaders of His time. uh, and, And that's what you get in those stories. So you're seeing Christ Jesus facing opposition. Then as you finish out into Mark chapter 3, what you're going to see is Jesus really begins to zone in on His disciples. Okay, in that chapter, Mark chapter 3, He pulls aside 12 men. He pulls them aside to himself that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And he gets these men. He actually names those men in chapter 3. And what you're going to see is he starts really pouring his time and his efforts into these 12 men. You get into chapter 4 of Mark and you see there's four parables. You're just going to see Jesus teaching. Part of the way he's, he's equipping these disciples, these 12 men, is he just begins to teach them. Four parables we get there. And then at the end of that section it says, with many such parables, Jesus taught these men. After that, starting in chapter 4, verse 35, all the way through to chapter 5, you just get miracle after miracle that Jesus just starts doing. And He's just showing that He is glorious. He's just displaying His glory to His disciples. You get Him calming the storm. You get Him delivering the demoniac. You get Him healing the lady that, could only, that couldn't be healed by any doctors. You get Him also uh, raising the, the little dead girl, uh, raising her from the dead. Okay, you get these miracles saying this is who Christ is from chapter 435 all the way to to the end of chapter 5. Then you break into chapter 6 where we are today. And before you get to our passage today, you see Jesus take those 12 men and he's going to send them out. And he sends them out for the first time, their first missionary journey. He's teaching them to trust him. He's teaching them that they're going to face persecution. And he sends these 12 men out. Now, as they come back, In Mark 6, verse 30, you see them come back and they start reporting to Jesus what happened when they were on that missionary journey. And then Jesus does one of the greatest miracles He ever did. And Dustin taught on it a couple of weeks back. He he takes a little kid's lunch sack and feeds 20,000 plus people and just feeds them all. Okay, And this miracle is in all four Gospels. 
Okay, this is the, there's only one other miracle. The resurrection of Christ is in all four Gospels. Not to mention, after he did this miracle, where he fed the thousands, they tried to forcibly make him king. Can you imagine that? They were willing to come up against the Roman Empire, unafraid, make Jesus king. That's how much this miracle had rocked them. Now, all these miracles revealing the glory of Jesus, and all these miracles having some sort of humanitarian effect, right? Healing someone feeding the hungry, those kind of things going on. Did his disciples in training get it? Did his disciples in training get it that he's God Almighty? Did his disciples in training get it that he is the glorious God that's from everlasting to everlasting? Now you would think at this point that they're just slap full of faith. You would think that, right? You would think that they would know that he is God Almighty. But did they? And you actually see that they didn't. And if you're in our passage today, we're actually going to bump ahead just a little bit. Look at verse 52, chapter 6, verse 52. I want you to see that they didn't get it. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. So here's these men after all that, all these miracles laid out. He says their heart is hardened and they didn't understand about the loaves. You say, how did they not understand about the loaves? Hardness of heart makes you dumb. Put that on Twitter. They didn't understand about the loaves. They got this hardness of heart. Do you see that? So what happens? This amazement that they had over the feeding of the thousands from just a few loaves and some fish. This amazement that they had quickly wore off, right? Because they're on this boat right after that in the middle of the sea. They're on this boat and they're hard hearted and they're ignorant to what God has done. Now, I want you to see that what Jesus is going to do, what we're about to read about, is Jesus is about, he's about to work a miracle that's going to strike fear in them. He's going to work a miracle that's going to shock them out of their hard heartedness and cause them to bow down and worship King Jesus. And that's the very point of this miracle. It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, Okay, I've done all these miracles. They're still hard-hearted. Uh, maybe they thought I was just doing it for humanitarian reasons. But now I'm about to walk on water. I'm about to do a, a miracle that just shows my glory and has no other purpose whatsoever. Let's read about it. Verse 45 to verse 52. Read along with me. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was, was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked to them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the lows because their heart was hardened. Please don't miss the loving pursuit of Jesus toward his disciples in this passage. 
Please don't miss the merciful pursuit that Jesus takes towards hard-hearted men. Don't miss that. He's done miracle after miracle, and they're unbelieving, they're hard-hearted, but Jesus doesn't give up on them. Jesus Jesus doesn't give them up to their unbelieving ignorance. But instead, He lovingly pursues these men, and He shocks them to see that He is the great I Am. Listen to Isaiah 65, verse 1 through 3. I was ready. Listen to God. God said, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good. A people who provoke me to my face continually. Did you hear that? Here's the the testimony of God. He holds out his hands all day long to a rebellious people provoking him to his face. And we see this right here in the life of Jesus. He's done work after work after work in front of their eyes. And yet they're hard hearted. And here comes another one. Here comes another one. And he's going to show them that he is the great I am. And he's going to cause them to bow down and worship. What about you? Are you hard hearted toward Christ? Are you calloused towards Jesus? Could it be that God, in His sovereign way, has you here right now to hear this story about Christ to break up the fallow ground of your heart? Could it be that in God's sovereign will, He has you to to be here and see Jesus pursuing these people to a point to where they bow down and they worship Him? Could it be? Could it be that God would be using this passage of Scripture today as we walk through it? Could it be that God would use my preaching to hold out His hands and say, here am I, here am I, all day long. Let's start going phrase by phrase. Look at verse 45. Verse 45. Hear the Word of God. Immediately, He made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while He sent the multitude away. I want you to notice the urgency here. He's just done a miracle that made 20,000 plus people want to make him king. And he says immediately, immediately, he made, that word made right there is like he compelled them. He strongly warned them. He commanded them, get in the boat and go. What's with the urgency? And it says he sent the multitudes away. Why such an urgent message? Why does Jesus clear out the multitudes so abruptly after this last miracle? Why is he so suddenly send them out? Why not be their king? Why wouldn't Jesus just be their king right here? And let me give you a couple answers to that. Number one, Jesus knew that their desires to make him king were purely selfish. Purely selfish. All they wanted was a king that could fill their bellies like he just did. All they wanted was a king that could heal their sick like he's done all throughout this gospel. They were not motivated by conviction of sin or by a need for a savior. They were not enamored with his message that he preached the gospel. They were a what can what can Jesus do for me kind of people that were motivated by selfishness. They wanted the good stuff that he offered, but they would never lay down their life for him. And they'd never bow down and worship him. Not one time. And as soon as Jesus would come out and say something that their ears didn't want to hear, they'd turn against him like a pack of wolves, as we see in John chapter 6. So this was not, they were not going after King Jesus with the right motivation. Another reason why. Why didn't Jesus just become their king? It wasn't the right time. 
It was not the right time. It's not time at this point for Jesus to be exalted as king. He must first go through a cross. The cross. He dies a sinner's death on a cross first. And then he's exalted as king of all. King of the universe. Why? Why the cross first? You say, why the cross first? Do you realize that if he didn't go to the cross and he became king in that moment, he's king, but we're all still in our sin. We're all still under the punishment of God. We're all still under God's wrath. His wrath abides on us still, even though He is King. It doesn't do us good. But instead, He goes to a cross first. And at the cross, He absorbs our sin. He absorbs all the wrath and punishment of Almighty God. He takes it on to Himself. He dies on the cross, buried, risen from the dead, ascends on high as King of kings. And now He's made a way that we can come into the kingdom as servants of King Jesus. So He goes to the cross first so why so that's the reason he sent the multitudes away right he's not going to be their king yet but why does he send the disciples away so quick do you notice that immediately he told his disciples to get into the boat he made them do this why why is he so urgent with the disciples it may be that they were getting caught up in the moment maybe can you that would happen right Twenty thousand plus people wanting to make him king not scared of the Roman Empire, what you think you would probably get caught up in the moment then, right? So maybe they were caught up in the moment and so he wanted to send them off. We can't know that for sure. But here's what we do know for sure. We know this. We know that Jesus knows at that moment that his disciples' hearts are still hardened. They've seen a glorious miracle and yet his disciples' hearts are still hardened. And so Jesus does what? He sends them into a storm. Why? To punish them? No, He sends them into the storm because He's getting geared up to show them His glory. Do you know that Jesus does this? He sends His disciples into storms. Do you realize that? And do you realize that when He sends you into a storm, the ultimate end is for your good. It's to show you His glory. And that's what we see Him doing right here. So we look at the disciples. We see them in the midst of the sea. We see them there. They're by themselves in the midst of the storm. And we do not conclude that Christ Jesus has forsaken them even though He's not with them on the boat. We don't conclude that, do we? We don't say, well, Jesus forsook them. They're in the middle of the sea by themselves. Instead, we conclude that Him sending them out is a loving pursuit of Jesus. He's sending them out into the storm and He's about to declare His glory. What about in your life? Have you been sent out into storms? The waves hitting your boat. Do you, do you feel that? you feel like David? Psalm 13 says this. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you been in that place? And what's your conclusion? Is your conclusion that Christ Jesus has forsaken you? Or is your conclusion the truth? That He said He'll never leave you nor forsake you if you're in Christ. And that He's actually in loving pursuit of you to show you His glory. Go to verse 46. Verse 46, let's read it. And when He had sent them away, He departed to the mountain to pray. He departed to the mountain. So He sends them away. They're in the middle of the sea. And He departs to the mountain to pray. So He sends them out. He's about to show them His glory. And then Jesus goes and gets along with the Father in prayer. Can you see Him there on the mountain? Can you see Him there? 
praying for those men that He just sent out? Can you see Him there interceding on behalf of those hard-hearted, ignorant men? Can you see Him praying something like we see Him praying in John 17 where He says, Father, show them Your glory. Father, I desire that they might see My glory. You see Him there praying in that way? Can you see Him there on the mountain saying, God, what I'm about to do, Father, what I'm about to do, break up their fallow ground of their hearts and help them to see who I really am. Can you see Him doing that? And this is a sweet, sweet reminder that Christ Jesus intercedes on behalf of those who are His. Maybe you feel like you're in a storm, tossed by the wind, waves hitting your boat. Do you know that He's interceding for you if you're in Christ Jesus? Do you believe Hebrews 7? Do you really believe Hebrews 7.25? It says, He, the great high priest, always lives to make intercession for them. You see it there. Quick side note. I can't resist seeing Jesus here alone with the Father praying. I can't resist taking a second just to exhort us as a people to pray. To follow His example. Get alone with the Father in prayer. Worship Jesus in prayer. Intercede on behalf of each other in prayer. I can't resist but to tell you that, okay? Busyness in people's lives keep them from getting alone with the Father in prayer. Over and over again you hear that. I'm just so busy. And usually it's an excuse. If you genuinely are too busy to get alone with the Father in prayer, you are too busy. If you look at chapter 6, verse 31, at the very end, it says that Jesus, after their, the disciples' time out on their first missionary journey, they return. And when they return, Jesus is getting ready to take them on a vacation. And the reason why, He says this, for there were many coming and going, and they did not have time even to eat. Jesus doesn't even have time to eat. And so He takes His disciples on a vacation. And when they get to the vacation, 20,000 plus people show up and they serve Him. You are not busier than Jesus. I mean this, and I'm going to get back on task in a minute, but I mean this seriously. We've got to quit making excuses. It's time to get alone with the Father. Get in this secret place, alone with God on a daily basis. Spend time with Him. That'll be my rant for the day. Back to the passage. Go to verse 47 and 48. Okay, verse 47. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. So it's giving you placement. Boat's in the middle of the sea, Jesus on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now let me show you something amazing here. This is awesome. Where is the boat, according to this passage? In the middle of the sea. And where's Jesus? On the land. And did verse 48 just say, He saw them straining at the rowing? How did Jesus see these men? They're in the middle of the sea. If you read John 6, 19, it says they're three to four miles out into the middle of the sea. How did Jesus see them? And this reminds us of the divinity of Jesus, who is God. Jesus is God who sees all things. There is nothing hidden from Jesus' sight. They're in the middle of the sea. Picture it. Disciples in the middle of the sea. They're straining at rowing because they're being tossed by the wind. 
The, the winds, the, excuse me, they're tossed by the waves. The winds coming down on them hard, and they're straining at rowing. They're striving painfully, hours and hours and hours until past 3 a.m. in the morning. And does you think Jesus is unaware? No, he sees them. It says in this passage, Jesus sees them as they're straining at the rowing. Our sight is limited. Our vision can be obstructed by distance. We can only see so far. Our sight can be obstructed by certain objects. We can't see through walls. Our sight can be obstructed by time. We can't see into the future. But Jesus is the God who sees, as is mentioned in Genesis chapter 16. Remember the story? Genesis 16, you got Hagar, a woman in desperation. She's afflicted and rejected, and she's running away from her oppressors. And in the moment of her desperation, when she's all alone, and it seems like nobody else is there to help, God reveals Himself to her in Genesis 16, 13, as the God who sees. He sees her in her distress, and He even sees into her future. Time does not restrict God's vision. God Almighty sees 2,000 years into the past just as vividly as He sees 2,000 years into the future. Distance does not obstruct God's vision. He sees all things. And you see Jesus here. And He's getting lifted up as the one. He's the one who sees all things. Nothing is hidden from Christ Jesus' sight. So take heart. Take heart, brothers and sisters. He sees you when you're straining at the rowing. He sees you when you're painfully making your way across the sea. He sees you when you seek to obey Him. He sees you when everything is hard. He looks on you when you're troubled. And His thoughts towards you are more than the sand on the seashore. He looks on you with compassion and with love when you're right in the middle of a situation, just like the disciples. Now this ought to stir up worship in our souls, should it not? Jesus is the God who sees. It's just like Nathaniel. Remember John, the end of John chapter 1? You've got Nathaniel. The story of Nathaniel, he worships Jesus because he sees him as the God who sees all things. Nothing hidden from his sight. Nathaniel walks up to Jesus. He's never met him before. And, and Jesus says something about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do you know me? And then Jesus says, but when you were at the fig tree, before you were with Philip, when you were at the fig tree, I saw you. And, and, and Nathaniel just hits his face and he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Oh, glory to Jesus, the God who sees. The God of Genesis 16, 13. Mark 6, 48b. Look at the next sentence right here. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them this is what we've been building up for. The fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Alright, it says about the fourth watch of the night. The way that works, you have four watches through the night. The last watch is obviously the fourth watch and it's from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So sometime in the middle of the night, sometime around 3 a.m., Jesus comes. It says he came to them walking on the sea. This is the miracle we've been building up to. This is the miracle where Jesus shows his loving pursuit of his disciples. This is the miracle that Jesus employs to break up their stony heart and help them to see that he is the great I am. This is that miracle. 
Don't let it slip past you. Don't let familiarity with the idea that Jesus walked on water betray you and cause you to miss the glory of this miracle. Don't let it slip past you. Jesus is walking on top of water. For no other reason but for His own glory, He is treading on top of water. You see that? Can you picture it? Every time that you've ever jumped into a body of water, it was sink or swim for you. Every single time. You ready, JR? I told JR he's going to give us a demonstration of what it looks like when anybody less than Jesus tries to walk on water. But I'm not going to make him do it. So here's what you see here. Jesus, he's just, he's just treading on top of these stormy waves, okay? You've got 12 grown men. Think about it. 12 grown men in a boat. The waves are rocking their boat. The wind is so strong that they, 12 grown men, they cannot get to their destination. They've been rowing and straining at rowing all night long. And Jesus just, with ease, walks on top of the water to them. Jesus strolls along with the waves under His feet, unhindered by the strong winds. He does this to show His glory to those disciples, and He does it to show His glory to us. Listen to Job 9 verse 8. This is what Job said in Job 9 verse 8. Job said this about God. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is what Job says about God. Only God can tread on the waves of the sea. And here we see Jesus. Just walking with ease, unhindered by the waves, unhindered by the wind. And by the way, Jesus did not walk just a short distance. This was not a short walk on the Sea of Galilee. If you read John 6, 19, it says the disciples are three or four miles out. Jesus just ran a 5K on water. Where's my runners in here? Anybody a runner? How? Runner? How long does it take to run a 5K? 25 minutes? I don't think he's running. Do you see what's happening? This is amazing. Christ Jesus, just for his own glory and namesake, is walking on top of water. It says in the next phrase, and he would have passed them by. He would have passed them by. Now, the ESV actually says it better here. It says, he meant to pass them by. Okay, what's this phrase all about? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean Jesus just accidentally went by them. Like, oops, there they are. That's not what it means, okay? You remember, it's, it's pitch black dark, okay? Jesus has had his eyes on them since he was on the land. He was their bullseye. That's where he was headed. And it's pitch black dark. It's 3 a.m., fourth watch of the night. And all the places that he could have walked in the sea, and he decides to stroll right by these disciples to show them his glory, right? To show them his glory. Exodus chapter 33 and 34, we see the same thing God doing this. Okay, we see, we see Moses pleading, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And in Exodus 33, verse 22, this is what God responds. He says, So it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see. Exodus 34, 6 says, And the Lord passed by. And the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. He passed by them. And Jesus in the exact same way, we see Him passing by them to show them His glory. 
passing by them to, to break up their hard hearts, to soften their hard hearts, and show them that He is the great I Am. Now, how would the disciples respond? Go with me to the next phrase. Verse 49 through 58. How would the disciples respond? Verse 49. And when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw Him and were troubled. So what was their initial reaction to seeing this? They thought they saw a ghost. The, the Greek word there is phantasma. They thought they saw a phantom. They thought they saw a ghost. They figured that only a disembodied spirit could hover on the waters like they were seeing Jesus do at this moment. And it says right there in verse 49, they cried out. That Greek word, they cried out, is mainly only, it's pretty much only used when a demon is in somebody and it causes the person in whom the demon is to cry out. So try to imagine it. Here they are troubled. Verse 50 says troubled. The SB says terrified. They are terrified. So try to imagine, okay? They're in the middle of the sea. They're miles from land. It's dark outside. It's 3 a.m. The wind's blowing hard. Waves beating against the boat. These men have been trying all night long to get to their destination, but they can't do it. They are exhausted. Their muscles are aching. And all of a sudden, in the dim moonlight, they see a form hovering over the water past their boat. And they are terrified. They don't know that it's Jesus. And you see 12 grown men. Can you picture it? 12 grown men screaming like they got a demon in them because they're scared. And so would you, by the way. So would I. It's like Jesus gives them the shock treatment to shake them out of their hard-heartedness. Now, how would Jesus calm their nerves? Look at 50b. Next part, next sentence. But immediately He talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then He went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased. So Jesus, right in the middle of their what seems like fruitless striving, they're just straining at the oars, but they can't get there, fruitless striving, and right in the middle of their great fear, Jesus comes out and speaks these compassionate and gracious words. He says, be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now that phrase right here, it is I, is a very important phrase for you to understand. He says to them, it is I. And that phrase literally means, I am. I am. There's a couple ways in the Greek you can say I am. And this is the intense form. I am. Over in John 8.58, Jesus employed these words. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is the same. You remember that story? After he said, before Abraham was, I am. They tried to stone him because he was claiming to be the great I am of the Old Testament. And that's the same phrase we see here. This is the claim of Jesus to be Exodus 3.14 God. He said, I am the I am who I am. And Moses, go tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. And right here we see Jesus claiming to be the great I am. The Yahweh of the Old Testament. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. So Jesus says to him, I know 
I know you're stressed out right now. The waves are threatening to take your boat under. But listen, I am the great I am, and I tread over the top of these proud waves with ease. He says, I know that you're exhausted. You're unable to do the thing that I've commanded you to do because of the wind. But that wind, I am the great I am, and the wind has no effect on me. Don't be afraid. He says, I know you're terrified. But listen, take heart. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I am Yahweh and I'm with you is what Christ tells them in that moment. Maybe he tells them something like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Yes. This is Christ. Then Jesus gets into the boat with him. Did you see that? In verse 51. And get this. He gets into the boat and the winds just stop. It just stops. He just steps in the boat and everything stops. Lesson over. He's given his lesson. He owns the storms. The storms belong to Jesus. They're His. He employed, He's the one that started the storm, sent His disciples into the storm, and once He's taught His lesson, the storm just ceases. It just stops. Don't miss this important point. Storms cease when Jesus is done using them. Not a moment before, not a moment after. Storms cease when Jesus is done using them. There's not a wave or a puff of wind, or a mighty storm on this earth that doesn't bow down to Jesus and His Lordship. Now, what effect do you think this has on those men? Go to the next sentence. 51b. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the lows because their heart was hardened. It says they're greatly amazed. Beyond measure. The ESV says they are utterly astounded. They are utterly astounded. The account in Matthew 14, the same account, Matthew 14, 33 says this. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped Him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They began to worship Him. They went from hard-hearted and ignorant to white-hot worship in a moment. It worked. This word astonished they were utterly astonished. That word literally means, in verse 51, it literally means it to be thrown out of position or displaced. It means these men were beside themselves. I mean, this is, this is literally, they were, they were driven out of their mind almost to the point of insanity seeing what Christ had just done. Can you picture the scene? Twelve grown men bowed down in the boat, worshiping King Jesus as the great I Am. They see it. Can you see that? This, this was a life-changing miracle. Let me say something really quickly. It might help you see that. Life-changing miracle. This is what I'm saying. After the feeding of the thousands, we know, we know that these disciples' hearts were hard. We know that. We also know if you read the same walking on water and feeding of the thousand account in John chapter 6, that after the feeding of the thousands, the multitudes also we're still hard-hearted. Jesus looked at them and said, you're not coming to me because of the signs. You're coming to me because you want your bellies filled. Does that make sense? 
So the crowds, the multitudes, and the twelve, both hard-hearted after this miracle. But there was a group of men, the twelve, who experienced this miracle on this boat. And what was the end result? At the end of John chapter 6, after Jesus takes them all, and he begins to say some hard things to them. Things that were hard to understand, things that were hard to hear. Here was the result of the multitudes. In John 6, 67, 66, it says this, From that time, many of those disciples went back and walked with him no more. But then Jesus turns to the twelve, the ones that experienced the life-changing miracle. And he says this to the twelve. Jesus says, do you also want to go away? But Peter answered, and he's speaking for all of them. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This miracle changed things for them. This miracle was about the glory of Jesus. If you see the connection in verse 51 and 52... It says they were amazed. They were utterly astounded. And then verse 52 says, For, listen to that connector, For, they had not understood about the lows because their heart was hardened. And that shows us that Jesus did this just to declare His glory. Jesus sees all things. He even sees into our heart. He saw from the land that those disciples were hard-hearted still and they were not understanding that He is Yahweh. Jesus knows these things. And so he works, a, he works a work in their life that dropped them to their face and caused them to worship Jesus. It worked. Now, for the sake of our own worship, let's recap. For the sake of our own worship, let's recap. Jesus shows his creator power by feeding from a little kid's lunch sack over 20,000 people in the wilderness. Then he shows himself to be the God who sees all things. No distance can obstruct his vision. He even sees into the hearts of men and women. Then we see Jesus praying for those who are his, who, who are his interceding on their behalf. What a mediator Jesus is. Then we see him lovingly pursuing these hard-hearted and ignorant men. Then we see him walking three or four miles on top of the water, treading the waves unhindered by the wind. And then he looks at his fearful disciples with compassion, shows himself to be the great I am, and comforts them and says, don't be afraid. And then he gets in the boat and the storm just shuts up. He is absolutely worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your worship. This, this gospel account doesn't even mention this fact that you see in John chapter 6. It doesn't even mention that after these disciples were bowed down and they were worshiping King Jesus, when they lifted up their eyes, they were immediately at their destination already. Listen to John 6, 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Wow. Twelve grown men striving all night long, but they're failing. They can't get where they think they're supposed to go. Jesus is not in the boat. And the moment Jesus steps in the boat, he teleports them to their destination. Wow. Jesus is worthy of unending praise. Jesus is worthy of unceasing worship. And to quote to him, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my heart, my life, and my all. Now let me address a common question quickly. There's a common question that comes up in this passage in Mark, and here's the question. 
why does Mark in this gospel account leave out the part of the story where Peter walks on the water too out to Jesus? Make sense? That's in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 to 23. To summarize it, Peter's sitting there amazed. He's on, on walking on water. He's amazed. And he looks at Jesus. And in looking at Jesus, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter steps out and he walks on the water for a time. He begins to see the winds and the waves and he starts to sink. And Jesus sticks out his hand and picks him up and puts him back into the boat. And that's amazing, right? And you say, why did Mark, this is the common question, why does Mark leave this out that Matthew put in? And here's a few things we could say. I'll give an attempt here. We know that Mark got his information, got his content, at least humanly speaking, from Peter. If you have any question with that, you can listen to the intro that Dustin did on the book of Mark. He got his information from Peter. So maybe... Since Peter, the story of Peter walking on water is him. Maybe, just maybe, Peter is so God-centered as opposed to man-centered that he did not feel it necessary to talk about himself walking on water. John MacArthur says it like this. I think by the time Mark wrote his gospel, Peter was a humble man. Peter didn't want to focus on Peter. Peter wanted to focus on Christ. In other words, it's like this. It's like somebody came to Peter and said, Peter, you just told the story about Jesus walking on water. Why didn't you mention yourself walking on water? And maybe Peter would respond something like this. Why on God's green earth would I talk about myself walking on water? Did you hear what Jesus did? He tread the waves to see as the great I am. He got in the boat and the, waters, the, the storm just stopped immediately. Why would I mention myself? think we can learn from this God-centeredness as opposed to man-centeredness? And I say absolutely we can learn from it. We tend to be very, very man-centered. It's all about us. Everything's about us. Just man-centeredness is rampant. Let me show you one place you see it. In your Bible reading. So that was weird. In your Bible, you see it in your Bible reading. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we treat the Bible as if it is just a self-help book instead of a book that enables us to see the glory of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it's talking about a man reading the Bible. And it says, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And then he's transformed into the same image. How do you go to the Bible? In your daily Bible reading, what questions do you ask? Do you ask questions like this? How does this affect me? And what does this mean for me? Now, these are not bad questions. These are good questions, but they're secondary to this question. Who is God? Who is Christ? Who is He declaring Himself to be in this Word? And maybe this is the reason so many people miss the point in Matthew chapter 14. Now, the story of Peter walking on water is obviously important. I don't mean that. That's why he records. That's why the Holy Spirit records it in Matthew chapter 14. But so often, the only thing people talk about is they exalt Peter. And they say, this story is just to show me how I should walk on, step out and walk on the water myself. And they totally miss the glory of Jesus in that passage. Spend time in God's Word every day. And, and when you do that, what is your aim? What's your ultimate aim? Are you looking for commands you can obey? Are you looking for promises that you can stand on? And I say yes and amen to that. 
That's great. Keep doing that. Don't stop. But do not miss the point. You were created for the glory of Jesus. You were created to bow down and worship. Look at God's Word and dive into God's Word until it forces your heart to bow down, see Jesus, and worship Him. Don't be man-centered in your Bible reason. One more quick lesson from the omission in Mark's Gospel of Peter walking on water. One more quick lesson. Now, I've already said that Mark got his information from Peter. So could it be that this shows us that Peter talked a lot about Christ and a little about himself? Could it be that Peter just didn't talk much about himself? And what can we glean from this? What can we take from this? Let us be people that talk more of Christ. We talk more of Christ and less of ourselves. Let these verses serve you. Listen to Proverbs 27 too. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. Do you hear that? What about Proverbs 30 verse 32? Listen. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, put your hand over your mouth. He means shut up. If you've been foolish in exalting yourself, just shut up, he says in Proverbs 30, 32. So instead of being a people that just talk about ourselves, man-centered, it's about us, Psalm 96, 2 says this, proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among the peoples, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Again, this comes back to man-centeredness, right? Or God-centeredness. Do your words, what do your day-to-day -day words reveal about yourself? Do they reveal a heart that's man-centered and it's all about self? Or do your words reveal a heart that's God-centered and this is about Christ, this is about Jesus? May we be a people full of praise to King Jesus. May we be a people that do not miss the point when we see things like the multiplication of the loaves. Or the treading of Jesus on, on top of the waters. May we be a people that are ultimately concerned with the exaltation of Jesus in every word, every action, every thought. This is about Him in every way. Last section here. Go with me to March 6, 53. We're just going to put this one all together and spend a short little time on it. Verse 53 says this. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Him. They ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard He was. Wherever He entered into a village, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garments, and as many as touched him were made well. Now, this is an account, and we'll talk about this shortly. This is an account, not of a one-time event, but this is a summary of Jesus' final flurry of ministry in Galilee. If you remember, Galilee is the place where he spent most of his time doing ministry. And right here, we're going to see like a final chapter, a closing summary of what Christ has done. This is the reason we see like in verse um, 56, it says, wherever he entered into a village or a city or a town. So this is just summarizing. He's been going to different places. This is the final chapter of his ministry in Galilee. After this, 
In the coming chapters, we're going to see Jesus go to the regions of the, of the Gentiles. We're going to see Jesus head towards Judah and Jerusalem and eventually to his cross. That's where he's headed. But right here, we get a last look into the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Now, try to picture it. As soon as he lands on shore, the people recognize who he is. And they begin to run. Just imagine these people. They start running into the regions, saying, Jesus is in our region. He's here. He's here. Come and see. People from all over, they start putting their sick and their diseased friends and relatives, and they start carrying them to go find Jesus. And it says, wherever he might be. Can you see the chaos here? Jesus is literally being chased by people carrying sick people. You see that they're carrying sick people to him, diseased people to him. Just chase them wherever he's at. They just want to see him and put their people so that maybe, maybe he'll heal them. In every place Jesus went to, whether it's a small town or a big town or a medium town, they're bringing their sick into the, the marketplace, like the town square. Can you imagine the chaos? The chaos is as the marketplaces just fill up with sick and diseased people. And they're there and they're begging Jesus, just let us touch the, the fringe of your, your cloak. Just let us touch the fringe of your garment. Just let us touch your clothes. And every single person that touched his clothes it says they were healed. What a display of the power of Jesus. They just touched his clothes and they're healed. Even the fringe of his garments. No wonder a short time later when those garments are stripped off of him and he's hung under a cross, hanging there under our condemnation, hanging there under our curse, our wrath. No wonder. No wonder it has the power to not only heal our bodies, but to save our souls. Let me give a final takeaway. What's the final takeaway? Final takeaway is this. I want you to walk away and see this. Jesus wants us to see His glory. He wants that. He wants us to see His glory. Don't you see that in the story? He purposefully sends them into the storm. He purposefully waits until they're three or four miles out in the middle of the sea. He purposely passes by them to display His glory. He wants them to see His glory. And He wants you to see His glory. He wants this. He desires that you see His glory. Not that you just have a head knowledge of the greatness of Jesus in your intellect, but you see the glory of God in such a way that it causes you to bow down and worship as these disciples did. He desires so badly that you see His glory, that your spiritual eyes are open to the great I Am, that He's willing to send you into a storm. He wants it so badly that He's willing to see you struggle and strive on your own for a season and to show up at 3 a.m. treading on the waves. He's willing to scare you half to death so that you would see His glory. He's willing to whisper into your ear, don't be afraid, take heart, I Am. Listen to this prayer, John 17, 24. Listen, this is what Jesus says. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Did you hear that? He says, Father, I desire that they would behold my glory. He doesn't just say, He doesn't just allow you to behold His glory. He desires that you would behold His glory. Do you see that? He wants you to see His glory. And you might be here and you might be saying something like this. Listen, I'm trying. 
I'm trying to see the glory of Jesus. I'm reading the Word. I'm in prayer. My heart still feels hard. I still feel callous. I'm trying to see the glory of Jesus, and yet I'm still hardened. Listen to these words again. Listen. I desire, Jesus says, I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Jesus desires this. Don't grow weary. Keep crying out in prayer like Moses. God, show me your glory. Keep, keep reading the word and going after seeing the glory of the Lord in the scriptures. Keep pursuing the glory of King Jesus. And know this, that when you wake up tomorrow and you go to pursue the glory of Jesus, that you're not going to come face to face with a God that's cold hearted and wants to hide it from you. You're coming face to face with a God that wants to show you his glory. Be encouraged by that. That as you wake up tomorrow morning to seek Jesus and to seek his glory, to pursue him, that he's pursuing you. Does not the story prove that? And did not Christ prove it at the cross? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. And God, I do just lift up every soul here. God, let us see your glory. God, give us your presence. Give us your glory, God. Allow us, Lord, to come before you corporately, God, and before you in a secret place and show us your glory, God. God, if we get you, just like we've said so many times, Lord, if we get you, we get everything. All the comfort, all the peace, all everything that we could possibly need, God, is found in you. And so, God, just show us yourself. Let us see you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.